Any any prayer requests? Marcy. I will for Marcy, yeah. Um, Um, Linda, I don't, I don't know what you've been told, but generally we, we start with a lyric. It's been a practice of mine since we began, um, because the whole purpose of this, the, the subtitle of the course is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him, see if we can. And when you're reading a longer work, you can you generally get lost in it. It's just hard to hold it together. And one of the questions I've been constantly returning to with the longer worker, or even a drama like a Shakespeare play, is Christ here? Is God at work? Where is he? Can we find him in characters and what they're doing in some other way in the action? You know, the whole action that leads to an outcome. So it's been a constant question. And I, I wanted to do the lyrics because very often the lyrics are smaller. And so many of the lyrics that we've read have been explicit in looking at um, at presenting Christ or something that relates to him. And also because they're musical. And, um, sorry. Um, um, one of, if, if any, anybody who's read the ancient epics will know that all the ancient epics were musical. They were put to a hexameter line. There was a regular beat. They were sung. So the epics come to us from an oral tradition, um, generally aristocratic. Those of you who did the Odyssey will remember that Odysseus sits down at the Phocian court. When Chaucer's telling his tales, he's in a court setting. The epic belongs to an aristocratic world, an oral tradition. Um, so there's an aristocratic element one of Milton's comments in the beginning of one of his lines, how did he put it? Um, when he was writing an epic and knew that he would be speaking to fewer people, but the most important. I mean, looking at it now would seem arrogant. I think it's arrogant, but, but what, he was admitting a fact that few people were going to read an epic at his time. You know? Whereas today we've entered a modern world and mass production has made available everything. So the novel, I'm going to speak to that, the novel um, opens us to a very different world. In some ways, those of you who have been here for a while will know that there's an epic quality. When we did Faulkner, um, or we did Melville's movie <coughs> book, you know, I, I presented those as epic in character. They're a part of the modern world. But Anyway, we usually start with a prayer and a short reading of a lyric, and then we do these longer works, so. Um, I'm, what's the name of the baby? Charlotte. Charlotte. Charlotte? Yes, she's two and a half. Two and a half. Um, last week when we did prayers, um, Valerie asked us to pray for this little girl because she'd been in an automobile, or a car rolled over her and she was killed two, two and a half years old. We didn't know her name, but now we do. Any other prayers? <coughs> Marcy and Charlotte. <coughs> Got somebody else in my mind. I don't know who it is. <sighs> Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself. 
particularly in the mass. Um, the question that I've been asking weekly is, where are we when we take the Eucharist? Um, do we really have some sense with you inside of us that we're part of your kingdom? Um, I may be speaking for myself here, well, maybe not. Um, with you inside of us, with you present, it makes us so much more aware of our sins. The contrast between us with all of our failings and you um, widens a lot. Help us, none of us, to despair. To, um, the words in the Mass are, only say the word and I shall be healed. All of us wait on you. It, we're asked, you ask us to be patient, to go to you like the people in the Bible, to ask to be healed, uh, but to be patient, um, to give ourselves to whatever we're, you're doing with us. Help us to do that, um, to make struggle to put our sins away, um, but trust in you and not get dark or despair about them. Um, the great truth that Boethius taught us was there is no bad fortune. Um, nothing happens that, that you don't take and turn to something good. Struggle to help all of us take whatever's going on in our life and work with you to try to make it good, to give ourselves, to learn to put ourselves away. Only say the words and I shall be healed. We wait on you. Help us to give ourselves meanwhile. Um, ask a blessing on Marcy tonight. Um, um, help quiet her soul. Um, draw her closer to you always, daily. Um, um, help her and whatever doctors will work with her to resolve this, these physical problems. Ask for a special blessing on that young child, Charlotte. Um, receive her into your kingdom. <laughs> <coughs> Hard for me anyway, I'm not sure that I'm speaking for everybody. Hard for me to imagine a two and a half year old going to your kingdom and not suddenly blossoming. I, I can't see anybody in your kingdom except in your fullness. So let that little child take a joy in being with you and let the parents know that trust, have a faith that um, at one, sometime when they leave this world, um, they will experience this great surprise um, when they come into your presence and see that child they've lost. Um, help us all to hold on to hopes like that, no matter what's going on in our lives. And help us always to give ourselves to this reading, to do the work, to make it real for us, to take it in, make it a part of our lives, um, and then take it out to our world so that we can live it bear those burdens. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to continue with, um, remember I, I, I said last week that um, because we were going east, um, I thought I would try to find poems that moved us in that direction and so last week I read from um, the poetry of um, Miklos Radnoti, who was Hungarian, and remember he was um,
captured by the Germans in the war and, and made to serve the Germans on this long trek. He died on that trek and, and he witnessed the death of other people, but so many of his poems were written while he was on that trek, you know, doing hard labor and dying. The last, last time I think I spoke about one of the people he mentioned because the guy had fallen over from exhaustion and the soldier just killed him. And that's what they did. If, if, if they didn't contribute to the efficiency of the German machinery, dead, gone. So, um, um, I read one of his poems last time, and I'm just going to read a brief one here. This is from a small set of poems called Postcards. He'd written a letter home to his wife. He wrote these poems. They were in the notebook that was discovered, I think, I can't remember now, months and months after his body was discovered. Because like other bodies, other, um, um, other Jews who were forced into this labor, this March labor, they were just killed. Um, anyway, th when, he, when his body was recovered months and months after he died, um, they discovered this notebook of this collection of poems. And these are some of the poems that we have here. So this one is the f fourth, I think it's the f called the fourth postcard. Um, although in different collections it have dis different titles. But this is just a poetic response to an absolutely cruel moment when he's watching a comrade treated the way he was. Um, the fourth postcard. I fell beside him and his corpse turned over, tight already as a snapping string shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself. Lie still, no moving. Now patient flowers in death. And I could hear der sprick nook af. Um, I think it means don't speak. Um, still sprachen. sprachen means to speak in German. Um, it means he's still breathing. It's the soldier looking at him and speaking to himself and saying in his language he spoke really. Then I could hear der sprick noch off, above and very near, blood mixed with mud was drying on my ear. The soldier shoots him and blood pours out of his body too. So, on that note, <laughs> um, I've, got to say, I've got to say a note about this going ahead because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trusting myself that I'm remembering anything close to what I should remember in these days, but I'm going to try to get through the first five chapters tonight. I'm not going to be thorough about it, but I'm going to get through them because I want everybody, my hope is that this will really ground everybody because it's a difficult model, I know, and you can get lost in it. So um, I'm going to try to cover the first five. When we meet next week, this is so important. I, I can't stress this enough. Next week, I want to I cover, um, if you look at the table of contents, I hope you're all using the edition that we're using. If not, we, I'm not sure we have any left. But in, um, in the fifth book, so this is in part two, because part two starts with book four, Strains, and then book five, Pro and Contra. In book five, Alyosha is going to meet with Ivan in a tavern. I want everybody to pay attention to this really closely. Um, it's an important scene because it's the first time in the whole novel up to that point. Well, 
Alyosha has already had a meeting with Dimitri. We're going to look at it tonight, and, and I think it draws the two of them closer. But you know the boys have grown up not knowing each other. His family is broken apart. The kids do not know each other. They have no feelings for each other. Alyosha makes it clear that he loves his brothers despite their failings. Um, but um, in this particular scene, he and Ivan are meeting in a tavern, and Ivan expresses his joy, really, in having a few minutes with his brother because he wanted to get to know him. And the two are talking, and if you know, if you know anything at this point, you know that Alyosha tends to be sort of passive. The world acts on him. He's, he's not much of an actor. Dimitri, on the other hand, acts. Ivan is a skeptic, but he puts his mind forward. Alyosha's quieter, a little bit more passive. And Ivan takes the initiative and starts talking about himself. And um, in, in the two chapters that I've just mentioned, one of them, if you look at our, our copy, um, one of them is called Rebellion. It's the fourth chapter in book five. Yeah. A betrothal, snared you come with the guitar, the brothers get acquainted, yeah. rebellion. Yeah. The Grand Inquisitor. If you have not read those closely, you, you, will, you will miss a lot in the whole book if you don't. In, in the rebellion, Ivan is talking about his skepticism, his skeptical attitude about God. And um, he wants to believe in God in some ways he does, but he cannot accept the way the world is it is because it's too horrible. And he I'm thinking about um, um, Rodnoti here in the poem that I just read and the, 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 the march of the Jews doing this forced labor. He describes the horrors of men and says that no animal could ever get close to doing what humans do because animals do what they, they're not, they have not, they don't have an intellect, they're not making choices. And he goes on to describe what humans do, particularly with children, uh -huh. the innocents. And in the one he describes um, a, a scene in which the Turks were at war and deliberately went out of their way and raped kids and took kids and put the kids, nailed the kids up by their ears on a fence so that they could enjoy the agony. Or a scene in which a soldier comes to up to a mother carrying a child and puts the gun and then gloats gleefully while the mother looks on at horror and disbelief that he'll do anything and then pulls the trigger. So he has these descriptions of the horrors that men are capable of doing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I would, I would be sorry if we missed it. I, and one of the reasons I'm saying that is because um, we've got abortions in our world. There are sin. There, I mean, all of us are implicated. I just, whether we've been directly responsible or not, we're all, it's our sin in America. But it's covered up. So we go along putting on our formal dresses and acting as if everything's okay when there is something barbaric going on under our, the surface and we think everything's okay. One of the beauties of this novel is it's taking everything from underneath the surface and bringing it to the surface so we cannot miss it. The frightening things are presented to us chapter after chapter after chapter in human relations, in a large social world. Anyway, read that chapter because it's really important. It goes to the suffering that is a, not, a, 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 not an uncommon thing in Russia. It's going on everywhere. It's going on in our world today. And the following chapter, which is one of the most important in the whole book, it's called The Grand Inquisitor. And it's in that chapter that Ivan describes what he calls a poem that he's written. And he tells 
Alyosha that he's not written it, he's never written a line, he knows it by memory and then describes it. It's a scene in which Christ, come, or, yeah, Christ comes to earth and he's arrested by a cardinal and the cardinal confronts him in a jail cell and I don't want to, get, I don't want to do it because I, you know I hate giving stuff away. But what happens in that scene between the Cardinal and Christ, I think, is one of the most important scenes because it points up these conflicts between Christ as a Savior, the Church, and the State. Because you know that that's fundamental to the whole work. So if you've not read that, or those, if, if what I'm describing you can't recall vividly, and you know you're rushing through it or reading too fast, go back and reread them. Because I want to be sure that we spend some time looking at both of them this week. Okay, so back in school. Okay, um, for tonight. Last last week, I just gave a thumbnail sketch of European history that took us into Asia and Russia. I don't want to go back over that because I've done it already, but just briefly. Is everybody warm enough? Because I know sometimes it gets cold in here. Um, um, remember I read that line from Herodotus saying that, um, this is the Greek historian who lived about 5th century BC, who said that um, one, of the, one of the differences between Europe and Asia was that Asia was full of these barbaric tribes who had um, no ties with each other. Um, so when you put them together, what you had was an incoherent mess. But in Europe, something was happening. And I suggested that um, what was emerging in Europe that helped define Europe as a concept, not just physical boundaries, but as a concept, was the emergence of this um, sense of the inherent dignity of man. And I, so I went back to Homer. And my, you know, my, my contention is that our, the beginnings of European civilization start with Homer and the Old Testament. The, the revelations from God through the prophets. So it takes us back to um, Adam and Eve, to Abraham, and um, the attempt on Abraham's part to found this nation, the Exodus, all of it. And I've also said lots of times for those who've been around that if you if you look at the true traditions the, the the prophetic tradition and the epic tradition which i'm saying is partly prophetic it's amazing how they line up but my claim is that the western civilization begins with those two works or those two bodies of work the old testament prophecies from god to help humans know something about his end that we wouldn't know on our own and if you look at the epics, we see something prophetic um, making us aware of certain qualities to ourselves. And I suggested last week, in the Iliad, the most important thing there is, th you know, through everything that Achilles does, is that we have this concept that, that man has this inherent dignity. It doesn't depend on our booty, our possessions, our, mat our material acquisitions, things like that. Because if it does, if that's where we get our value of ourselves, our wealth, our jobs, how smart we think we are, what happens when we lose them? And what we learn from Homer is that 
when Achilles says to the embassy that comes to bribe him back into the war, I think such, I think such booty's a thing I, I need not, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's aware that he carries within himself some transcendent value, that there is something in the human soul that's transcendent. We're not just animals on this earth. So, um, <clears throat> and I also added that I think the f our first real grasp of the Logos, what Pope Benedict talked about is one of the two attributes of God, but he is the Logos, the Word, the rationality. We find it everywhere in creation. You can't look anywhere and not find and tell it. You can find it in a flower. You can find it in a turtle, in a spider. It's there everywhere. Um, one of them was the Logos, the other was um, love. So what's happening in those, in those early epics is <coughs> that we're beginning to have this sense that the, the way the gods interact with men in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, makes us aware that a divine order is doing what it can to curb our tendency to abuse power. To, to use power in a way that's violent and unjust involving other people. So, so I mean, that's why we started the course there. So the Aeneid, or I mean the Iliad, the, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, all show this divine order interacting with the human to help us become aware of some things. The Iliad does it with the individual dignity of man. The Odyssey does it with marriage. That we learn that um, because of everything that Odysseus and Penelope struggle that they come to a realization of a love between them that the other marriages don't have. Nestor's marriage and Menelaus. Because if you've read the Odyssey, you know that when Achilles, or I mean when uh, Telemachus goes looking for his father, he goes to visit Nestor. Nestor's been away for 10 years at the war. And then from there he goes to visit Helen and Menelaus. They were the ones the war was about. And in both of those homes, we see good marriages. But when we come home, when we go through the whole book and Odysseus returns home and fights off the suitors, we understand that the marriage that they have is different. That what happens because of Odysseus's travels, he comes to understand metaphysical realities. It's everything he discovers on his journey. For those of you, we can't go into it now, you're welcome to go online and look at that, but he has to deal with metaphysical things, the deeper things, and he learns something about himself that helps make him a better man. So when he returns home and defeats the suitors, on an allegorical level, that means he's learned to overcome those things in himself that makes him a better ruler. So when he and Penelope are reunited, what we're witnessing is, in the same way that we did with Achilles, Achilles represents this fulfillment that's possible to humans. What we see with Odysseus and Penelope is this fulfillment that's possible in marriage. But the cost of it is great, just as it is for Achilles. And in the Aeneid, we see Aeneas attempting to found Rome, the universal community. It's the city in which all people will come together, whatever their religious differences or ethnic differences. It's the universal city. So we have a notion of the importance of the individual, the importance of marriage, and the importance of the city, the polis, or the community, all emerging. <clears throat> and it's that sense of our, the importance of the individual in the community and marriage, I think, that, 
that distinguishes the West from other civilizations. That's what we've been doing together the last four or five years. Um, so we went from the beginnings um, to that point when, you remember the center of power moved from Rome to Constantinople um, into the Byzantine world and the tensions um, began to intensify, the tensions began to, the conflicts between um, Rome and Constantinople began to increase with all sorts of problems. Um, those of you who've done, remember when we did Boethius, remember that Boethius got caught up and that was accused of treason when he wasn't and was executed. That's, 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 that's just an indication of how unjust things were going on between those two centers of power. Um, Charlemagne, um, who was the king of the Franks, became the king of Italy, the Lombards, and then um, um, through the wars that he took on, managed to unify Europe again for the first time in centuries. So Europe becomes a united country again, um, and um, there's, I mean, we did this, I don't want to go back, there's too much to do here, but um, the relationships between church and state get even more embroiled. When we did Dante, those of you who did Dante remember how important the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, when you ordain the in investiture yeah. conflict. You know, when, when kings were investing bishops and popes and priests, the secular power over the church was increasing and what it did would lead to more violent wars between the church and state. Um, when the Turkey <coughs> conquers Constantinople in the 15th century, that seed of European culture dies, or it ceases to, um, it really dies out in the Byzantine area, it's left in Rome, but the culture goes east, and it's at that point that Moscow emerges as a, as a major city in, in the world, and claims that it's the new Rome. And it's shortly, yeah, shortly after that, the Peter the Great comes in the picture and travels west. <coughs> he's going to all the, he's already tried to conquer Finland and um, take control of some parts of the Ottoman Empire and fails in both instances. He goes west to learn from all the western kings and people and is amazed by what he finds in the west and takes it back. And it's at that point that he wants to reconstruct Russia. And I made the point last week that what happens then is dislocating beyond description. Because what he tried to do is create an artificial, impose an artificial system on a country that had thousands of years of tradition without fully entering into the West. Um, and it stays like that. It's a couple of centuries before Dostoevsky's time. But during that time, between Peter and Dostoevsky, if you know anything about Russian or European history, you know that, hit, that Europe is taken up by wars, revolutions, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the, the revolutions in 1948 in which begins in France and goes to Italy and all of Europe. The Austrian um, Empire um, is involved. There's just virtually not a country in Europe that isn't involved in those wars. And all of them are the result of an enlightenment world coming in, wanting to do away largely with the Catholic Church but with religion altogether, in, all, in so many of those countries, France for one, they took up the, um, they confiscated the church properties, did away with the monasteries, 
forbid Catholics to go to worship or make vows in marriages. I mean, the whole Catholic world was, or Christian world was pushed away or exterminated. Um, what Napoleon did was try to make a comrades and recover some of that, but, uh, but for a couple of centuries, Europe's at war. Um, by the time we get to the 19th century, Dostoevsky's time, Europe has enjoyed a century of relative stability. It's a time of consolidation, of um, trying to find some stability again. That's in Europe. So Russia's trying to become European when Europe has just gone through a period of two centuries of, of absolute turmoil. It's in that period that we enter the book. This is when Dostoevsky's writing, okay? Now here's where I want to take a minute just to try to make this concrete because I know that that's all thumbnail general, but, but that's the sort of general state of things. Here's what I wanted to do tonight, just to, because last, last week I remember saying to you, one of the interesting things about looking at Europe and Russia in this sort of survey mode I'm using right now, is that I said in, in Europe, um, philosophy and religion grew up together, absolutely entwined. I remember I, I mentioned what happened when the Muslims discovered Aristotle and Plato because they were so taken by their wisdom that they didn't think their religion could do without it. So um, a number of their made philosophers wrote heavily, and what they wrote placed them at odds with their faith. So the religious, Islamic religious leaders um, threatened them, and it, it led to what these Islamic philosophers called the two truths, the truth of philosophy and the truth of Islam. That couldn't last very long. But in the West, that didn't happen because philosophy, as, as we get it from Aristotle and Plato, is so compatible with Christianity. If you've read the Platonic Dialogues or Aristotle, you can see how they lead to them. If you, hold off, Mark. You can see how they lead to them. Um, but here's what didn't happen in Russia. As an example, and I want to use this because I, I made the connection last week between America and Russia, and I just I want to end with this before we turn to the book. Last week I said Russia didn't grow up with a philosophic tradition, and yet, and yet Peter went to the West to bring this intellectual life back, but it wasn't organic. It wasn't a part of the Russian tradition. You've got Holy Mother Russia being wrenched into a modern world um, when it doesn't have centuries of preparation for it. I want to give this example because it speaks so directly to what's going on in our world here today. Um, anybody living in the West through the whole Christian Middle Ages up and, up and through modernity to, through the Renaissance with Shakespeare, Melville, all of them up until the 18th, 19th century is a matter of fact anybody coming, anybody living in America or in the West in the 19th century would, anybody educated would have had some contact with Plato and Aristotle Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody educated? In the modern times, dead white males? Gone. I mean, I, I, I'd have to restrain myself from getting angry in one because this so, this so upsets me. Anybody educated going up through the 19th century would have read them. Now stop and think about this because you've been hearing me. I mean, we don't, we've not studied Plato, but I kept going back to him in the of his dialogue. It's impossible to read Plato 
without realizing that the end of our human life is justice with each other. That's a current theme through his dialogue. It's the major theme of the Republic. Plato makes it clear that we're too given to power and if we don't learn to order our souls, if our intellect doesn't learn to take control of our appetites, these desires that are so often out of control, what we're seeing in this book, through that middle element, that heart, or what the Greeks called thumus, spiritus or anger, if the intellect doesn't learn to take control of that, through that, remember the two horses, the black-white horse and the chariot, then man's going to live a disordered life. So the most important thing for the human individual is to mind his own business. That until he learns to order his own soul, he has no business telling other people what to do with theirs. Because the most important virtue is justice, to be at one with each other. That's our nature, to give what's due to another person. How can we do that if our own soul's disordered? Okay, is everybody with me? That's fundamental to Plato. That's just at the heart of what he's doing. Justice, and I've said this before, justice is the, the virtue par excellence of the Greek pagan world as it was for Old Testament Jews. That the highest thing was justice, to follow God's laws, to be obedient. So the two, absolutely compatible. Let's stop and think about that. Plato makes it clear that it's in our nature that there's something divine. It's only when we work with the gods that we can attain that justness, to be at one with each other. So justice is absolutely essential to fulfilling our human nature. If you go to Mass every day or, or once a week, you know through the year. The first reading, justice, 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 God's ways. Gospel, love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. We're supposed to bring those two things together. That's Plato. You can't read Aristotle and not know that the most important thing in the ethics is virtue. That we were meant to become perfect, but we couldn't do it without becoming conscious of our actions and the motives for them and the consequences that follow from them. So in, or in Aristotle, we're asked to reflect on our actions, to see the choices that we make, to learn from them. Why? in order to become perfect in virtue, justice and virtue. There's no way to do that without knowing our human nature. That is, all of us are given to excesses. We can drink too much, drink too little. Have too much sex, too little. Be too concerned about money, too, you know, I mean, if you've gone through the epics, you know. That the, and if you've read Portia, you know, Major or uh, Merchant of Venice, you know that she's a model of reconciling those extremes, that that's what she's faced in the courtroom there. So nobody, nobody, nobody could grow up in the West without being reflective, at least if you were educated. You would think about matters of justice. You would look at yourself and with the idea of trying to learn something about yourself. If, I, if I'm not courteous enough, what should I do? If I'm too argumentative, what should I do? If I don't have courage, which, you know, but we're not meant to be left where we are. I think about husband and wives who get married who don't risk saying, you know, do husbands and wives grow up today beginning with some notion of serving each other and becoming better in their marriages? I mean, I think it's lost in our world because we've lost that tradition. And here's where I'm going. 
This was fundamental. It was foundational to Western civilization. And it, and it accorded with Christianity because what Christ did was add an element of transcendent love to it, perfected it in a way that humans couldn't by themselves. But he didn't do away with them. He perfected them. So grace perfects nature. He didn't do away with it. That's our Catholic heritage. And I've said this, again, countless times. Go to the Protestant world, nature's depraved. It's gone. There's no concern for it or not the concern we have, justice, virtue, you're saved. Scientific world has done away with the logos, these notions, too. Here's the interesting thing. Up until the 19th century, up until, I would say, 7,500 years ago, but certainly 75 years ago, nobody could have an education in the West without encountering Plato, Aristotle, the pre-Socratics, Augustine, Boethius, Enter the modern world now as a student, 50 years ago. When the dead white ma the males are gone, what you have instead are Freud, Hegel, Marx. That you've got ideologues whose end is political, utopian socialism. So kids don't grow up anymore reflecting on justice as it relates to our human nature or individuals who can learn to grow because they reflect on their actions, now you're, you're introduced into an ideological world whose end is political. So when the kids come out of colleges today, they, what's fashioned in their mind is this utopian ideal for a socialistic world. Does that sound familiar? God, I'm hoping. No. But, but, to, but this notion of human responsibility or individual responsibility or justice in a way that relates to our human nature is not a part of what goes on. So the point that I, I mean, I, I think I'm trying to stress it today because I think it's so relevant to what's going on in America, but if you look back at Russia in 19th century, this is what you're watching. You're watching a world that belongs to a serf, feudal world, absolutely feudal and agrarian, and arbitrarily yanked out of it with these Western ideas with no traditions, no past, nothing organic to support it. And what it does is create this, this, this existential crisis in which um, people are presented with expectations and possibilities of some ideal with nothing to help them. In lots of ways, I think it resembles modern America, but I mean, I'll leave that up to your judgments. But that's the world we've entered with Dostoevsky. Okay? That's why when you, I think somebody, I think, I think it was um, Valerie last week made the comment, they're also lost. And I, I couldn't agree more. When you watch these characters, there's a sense that they, they're either stepping into a world purely through their minds, without any sense of a heart, or they're rooted in a past in their hearts. Or they're in between, um, I'm thinking of the captain and Fyodor, who are buffoons, both of whom are buffoons, they're clowns. They, they, I, mean, I, I mean, you can laugh at them, and I look at them and think, what else could they be? If you grew up in this world and you don't know how to act anymore, and you've been urged to believe that there's some truth, but nothing in you prepares for it, you're going to go around, if you have any spirit at all, you're going to go around acting like an idiot. Either that or not say anything. So what Dostoevsky is showing us is that the world is in dislocation. Modern Enlightenment ideologies have come in. There's no history to support them and we're watching an unsettled world. And I suggested last week, if you look at it, Dostoevsky doesn't know it, you're already headed towards socialism and communism. 
that's where it's going. We don't see that yet. We won't get it until Solzhenitsyn and some other Russian writers. But, but that's where we are. Okay. So let me take a minute. I don't know if there's any comments or questions. Well, I have or a question about: is, is there a class system in here? Because there is definitely the in Russia, Russia. Well, Russia had ties with the West through marriage. Right. So, wh how would you explain the people that are just not are they just not educated or? I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to look for Joe to correct me or add something. <laughs> yeah, there is a class system. Like Russia is by and large a serf country, a peasant country. Serfs they um, they're in they're owned by the la the landowners. So you've got the nobility and the dynastic families mm -hmm. that are close. So every so Peter the Great, all the all the czars come from dynastic families. Mm -hmm. So as in England, exactly like England, you've got aristocratic dynastic families. Then you've got the gentry, landowners who own land, and the serfs who are owned by them until the emancipation of the serfs. And the interesting thing there is even though that was in response to all these liberal ideas coming from the West, it, it practically ruined Russia. Because the serfs were let loose, they had no jobs. No in fact, they had to, there was a period where they had to pay rent to their landowners. The landowners had no serfs. So the two of them moved towards a greater poverty. The landowners were done away with um, and at, at Dostoevsky's time, there's all this concern about a possible revolution, because it's been happening in Europe. Assassinations of the czar, the, the royal family, are going on. And we, we know from last week, Dostoevsky was arrested because he was involved in this literary group, um, the Belinsky group, because they thought they were planning an insurrection, an insurrection when they were a literature group. But they were talking about new democratic ideas, revolutions, and so on that basis they accused him of treason. And you know, mm -hmm. they set him up before a, a firing squad. So, but it is a class society, deeply rooted in the peasant, the, the serfs. And so what's happening in this moment is a radical cultural revolution that's inspired by Western ideas, largely but without the help of Western traditions to... And you know that in the West, I mean, in the West, look what happened in the French Revolution, you know, the storming of the Bastille, mm -hmm. I mean, the executing, execution of kings and monarchs all over Europe. That even in Europe, there was no, no peaceful revolutions, they were all violent, so... The the, one of the things I just want to underscore here is what we're watching is, is a transition from a Middle Ages that would largely divine, we can say, divine-centered, divinely oriented. With the emergence of the modern state, you've got cultures that are more humanist-oriented, and God takes a back seat. And the modern state emerges with almost totalitarian powers. Um, well, but the church had totalitarian powers in 1500 years. Well, you can you can say fact. that. I. It's not a fact. God, it's an absolute fact. It's not an absolute fact. Here, let me. If I can just qualify that, because you may. If you look, and I don't want to go there. What I want to do is stay in the book. If you look at the church and state conflicts through, particularly if you go back to the work that we've done together, going back through all the stuff that we've handled on that, you know that both the church and state claim absolutist powers, both. But um, it's a time of conflict where there's where those powers are constantly 
subjected to scrutiny and battles. So I, I just want to be careful of a black-white judgment because it doesn't do justice to what's going on. They're, all along, all along, the, the church is struggling to free itself from state powers and the state is trying to free itself. What happens in England, if you go back to the period that we took on there, it becomes radical uh, when Henry separates himself and makes himself head and, and then the um, church wants to claim powers and then impose beliefs on other, you know, we've gone through that. So if you look back at, at the church history, it's, it's extremely complicated and it's constantly making subtle adjustments. But, but both of them are given to, given to absolute powers and in conflict with each other. That's what created the conflicts. So this is just an overview. I just want, I just want that background to be out because when we read Dossessi, you can read it and think, you know, all these characters are screwed up and why, why pay attention to this? There's a lot going on. And one of, the, one of the reasons I think it's important to look at it seriously because I think in some ways it reveals something to us about ourselves because I think the, self, the same struggles are going on. Here, let me put it a little bit differently. This is a generalization again too, but, and it needs a lot of qualifying, but if you watch America in the 19th century, you know that there was this war between um, the North and the South along lines of slavery. And the, the North won the war and the South looked back at that as a defining moment because they had to admit its guilt. All Southern writers acknowledge that. It's one of the, it's one of the distinguishing marks of the Southern writers. But what they were concerned about was that what would happen to the South is what they believed was happening to the North. That this industrial world, this machine-like world, was encroaching on individual powers. And what it was producing was what we call the deracinated man, man uprooted. That the individual world has done, because of the way it's conceived, has led to this deracinated state. Most people grow up today uprooted. Or, I mean, think about all the modern writers who talk about alienation, isolation, loneliness, or um, the loss of a community. Um, so it seems to me one of the values in reading Russia here is that in a prophetic way, Dostoevsky is writing truthfully about what's going on at his time, but he's showing us a condition of the modern world. It's the world we've let me stop. I want to get to the. It's a terribly complicated world, and church. And you know from the reading, you know from the reading of Dostoevsky in the opening chapters of the monastery, all the men are arguing about the relationship between church and state. It's up front. It's right there in the opening chapters, and it's clear how complex and how real it is. The two, the two absolutes are there: church or state. But the way in which they combine, the way in which they influence each other is, is partly what's at what's its issue in this conflict we've entered in the modern world. So any, if there's no other questions, I want to go to the book. I have one little yeah. question. What you're talking about, I, I read in, the, I guess, the foreword, and I, I did want to ask you about this. It says that... Um, Dimitri, I'm not going to pronounce these names mm -hmm. right, I know I'm not. Ivan, Aloysia, are three aspects of 
Dostoevsky's personality, three stages of a spiritual way, is that? I guess uh, that's a way of looking at him. I, I don't. I was wondering because you didn't mention it, and um, like I said, yeah, a yeah, no. We've got, by the way, those of you who have this translation, I think the guy who did the translation for this has a really good introduction, too. I think that's probably an accurate description of Dostoevsky's life. I don't, I don't want to go into it, but as a younger man, he was... Um, Dostoevsky was always religious, always religious. But I think as a younger man, he would have been more given to his passions and temper, like most men are. And he would have gone through a period of skepticism, lots of men do and come out of it. But I, to say that it were, you know, distinct, again, a black-white, you know, that they're all distinct, to me, I don't think justice to him. I, I think they're all in him. I, I think it would be more accurate to say they're, they're types of the fragmented persons that Russia has produced. Well, would you say that we all, as well, you said men, but all human beings, this is, could be uh, considered like a spiritual journey. I mean, we all go through these stages. Yeah, most yeah, of us do. I, yeah. Not all of us, maybe, but yeah, most of us. Yeah, I don't want. I, let me be short on this because it just you know okay. when you get off into theory like this, it, we're just. I want to be careful of the book. Okay. Yet the, my answer to that briefly is yes, but I think all of us know that some of us get stuck at a stage. It, to, to to present it that way is so much like a modern scientific determinist. These are our stages of life. And I don't, personally, I don't think all of us fit into those categories neatly, but yeah. if there's a growth in us, hopefully it would be in that direction, you know, but that's a, it's just well, such a... I was a wondering if that's what he was writing about himself. He does, I don't know. Okay. I mean, we're extrapolating or okay. inferring, you know, okay. it just... I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> Formula novel, quickly, just to go back. I made this distinction between the epic and novel. Remember that the epic takes us back into an ideal world in the past. It takes violence and disorder as its subject, but it presents them through a work of exquisite beauty and order. Remember the musical form of the epic. The aim of the epic is to reveal a heroic perfection possible in man, but we can't get to that except going back to an ideal world that's already completed. So remember, the only way into that world is through mimosine, memory, memoria. Memory is at the heart of these works. Every one of them, even Dostoevsky. Alan Tate has said that memory is an, is an aspect of all created work. That it's trying to hold on to something that's about to be lost. The, the forming of it commemorates it, celebrates it, even if it's in sorrow. Um, but the epics always show us the possibility of heroic perfection and the cost, remember, the cost of it. Every one of them has to do with the refounding. There's some disorder among men, among people, and the hero is called out by the gods to do something that will help recover something man's lost in the sins of these characters. Remember, in the Iliad, it's this disordered sense of honor. Men are killing each other. They treat women as objects. Um, all of these enhance their sense of themselves. Is that less true in our world? I, I wouldn't say so. The Odyssey is about, in, in lots of ways, I mean, it's a critique of women, the way women use men. Odysseus has to confront that at sea. But every one of the epics shows the possibility of 
of some in, inherent fulfillment, perpet, this great good, that man's noble. And I've set that against the modern world a number of times because you know the modern view of man is low. We're descended from apes or a big bang or something. The novel's a radical contrast to that view. The, model, the, the novel emerges in roughly in the 16th century with the Copernican Revolution, and it takes as its um, subject not an idealized past. It takes as its subject an open-ended present. So it's open to learning, to confusion, to what's familiar and um, ordinary in our lives. And it shows the worth of every human being. I would argue that it's, it's partly the product of a Christian worldview. We saw the, be I, I argue that we saw the beginnings of it in Dante. Dante's the first epic poet who takes himself as the subject of a story. What he's implicitly saying is every single one of us has a story. The reason, the reason for the multiplication of works, novel works in our world is because you know there's this great proliferation of stories. I mean, it, it isn't just the heroes anymore. What the modern novel shows is that each human being is capable of some good. It's also capable of some bad. And that's the greatness of stories. They show us the bad we're capable of. But the novel takes what's unfamiliar, open-ended. It takes learning. All of that started with Dante. So if learning is an issue, the hero very often in the novel grows brings into existence the novel of education, what we call the novel of education. So the novel is more democratic, it belongs less to an oral culture or tradition, and in the modern world it, it's available to everybody. It's become accessible so that more people can learn. Now here's the one comment I want to make about this. The novel, according to a Russian critic, Bakhtin, he's a person I mentioned before, is um, more democratic in what he calls dialogic. It involves um, an exchange, a more immediate exchange between people. If you go back to, um, let's just say Moby Dick. I, I, I disagree with Bakhtin on some issues, but I, I don't want to bring that up here just because I'm trying to make some generalizations here. If you go back to Moby Dick, or even Scarlet Letter, because those are recent experiences. If you go back to Moby Dick, you rarely find any of the sailors making important exchanges with each other. If you go back to Scarlet Letter, you find almost no significant exchanges between among the people in that group of Puritans who set themselves off from Hester and Anne Hutchinson. Remember, they're the elect, they're the saved. Anybody who doesn't conform to their practices are damned. They're among the damned. That's that Calvinistic world in America. Um, we see no, no discussions of any real importance. A couple of comments. Remember in the opening scene when the, the five women look at Esther and they're all, one of them wants to kill her, the other one wants to put a brand in her head. But there's no exchange to suggest they're learning from anything, they're talking with each other. It's just a black-white condemnation. If you read Dostoevsky, you can't read five pages without finding characters engaged in searching, telling dialogues. So it's more openly dialogic. We're watching a whole culture become important. It's more a reflection of the modern world and its democratic impulses. Yes, you've all read it to feel it. I mean, 
um, if you read Jane, if you set Jane Austen, whom I love, next to this, you're going to find <laughs> there's lots that Jane Austen doesn't deal with. I mean, she she does not deal with sinister things. She does not deal with God. We can't read Dostoevsky without encountering evil or people concerned about God and talking about it. So one of the effects of this, this dialogic quality, you all, you know the spelling of the world, the word dialogic. One of the effects, well, one of the effects of the of Dante, I mean, uh, of Dostoevsky, is that he's doing what Dante does. I think this is profound. I mean, it's one of the reasons he shakes me. He does what Dante does, except you know in Dante that Dante takes us to final ends. We're not in the world. We're in a world that's already done. The people in hell are there. The people in heaven are there. The people in purgatory are... Trying to get there. <laughs> well, we know they're on their way to heaven. They're not going to go to hell. So hell is, a, hell is a condition of final ends. So is heaven. Purgatory is for those people who, who um, accepted justice. They want to pay for their sins, but long for mercy. So they're moving towards heaven. We're in a world of final ends. We're not in the temporal order. In Jane Austen's world, we're in the temporal order. Dickens, we're in the temporal order. Dostoevsky, we're in the temporal order. We're here as if we're, we're in this world. But what Dostoevsky does that so few people does is that he goes to the depths of man's spiritual soul to reveal depths of good and evil that most writers don't. You have to go back to Dante, or Shakespeare at his best. No. Is that clear? I, I, I think that, but certainly for me, it's why sometimes I shake, because I look at this and think, these, he's showing us things about, I've been saying this from the beginning, he's showing us things about ourselves that so often we don't want to see. They're just not good things. And that's partly his courage as a poet. And that's what we're doing, okay? So let me stop. I want to go to the book, and um, I'm going to do something a little bit different today because I want to get you guys in the book. But any questions before? Some of the... Um, some of the more important themes, just to highlight these before we look at the book. The modern state is coming into existence, but it's the cost of uprooting traditional cultures. There are two forms of political thought at work in, in Dostoevsky's characters. You can see it in the thinking of the men in their arguments. The social contract bears and the socialist utopians, whose thinking was formed by Marx and Hegel largely. The social contract theorists, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, all said, and you get this in Ivan, you'll, you'll get it in the character, so pay attention because this is really important. Ivan makes it clear that man's basically evil over and over and over again. The social contract theorist, two of them anyway, said, man is evil. He's at a state of war. 
the natural condition for man is state of war. His, his driving forces, motivations are fear and um, pride. And the only way man can get out of that state of war, because it's a state of nature, that's the way he exists, he's inherently depraved. The only way he can get out of it is by making a social contract. I won't kill you if you won't kill me. I'm serious, I mean that makes sense, but that's it. What they do is make a compromise to get along. So the nature of the modern man is for purposes of self-preservation, in order to save my skin, I want to make a compromise. So any inherent dignity that we know from the ancient world, gone, gone. This is Chesterton's line. Chesterton's line is something like, men never form, formed a social contract. What they did was fight for the altar, for their belief in God, they were fighting for the gods, and found that they were courageous. That courage came into the world because they gave themselves to something higher. The social contract um, mediates that. It makes compromise the principle. So since the 17th century, the social contract has been the one, probably the most influential form of government thinking up until the present. And after Hegel and Marx, it becomes utopian theories. It's a class warfare. People are at war. It's the rich oppressing the poor. So every, every society is flawed. Those in control are the wealthy. They use the poor. And it's only by virtue of that warfare over time that people will come to this utopian socialistic world where everybody gets along. I mean, you can't look at you can't look at the political landscape today. I'm hoping everybody's hearing this. I mean, um, because it, in, it it informs so many thinkers today. Those are the dominating thoughts in the men when they're when they're talking about church and state and the forms of government of the state. So the modern state comes into existence, it's creating all these dislocations. Dosgesi is exposing this infernal world. And I'm going to claim that this is not an infernal book. It's, it's not Dante's Inferno. It's purgatorial comedy. It's about hope. That Dante is taking into this world. He's showing us all this violence. But um, something's happening. We will have to see. Some of you may disagree. but. Um, we have to ask ultimately what his vision is. What's the answer to all this violence? Um, part of the problems are that, um, that Russia and the modern world has lost sense of its metaphysical origins, its, 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 its ultimate roots in God, in being. That's something peculiar to the West. And that all of these dislocations have exacerbated the struggles between the sexes. For those of you who've been with here, you know that that's been one of the most important things from the very beginning. Iliad, Odyssey, the Aeneid, all of them. Dante with Beatrice, um, Shakespeare, all of his plays, Chaucer. But what's happened in the modern world because of this, these spiritual dislocations, the, the strains that have always been there, they're the result of the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, have become worse and intensified. So those are some of the conditions that make up the culture that um, Dostoevsky is dealing with here. Okay. So let me let me get to the book. What I want to do tonight is I'd like to try to just summarize the book to to, to get everybody in it because we haven't gotten into it yet. I've been 
talking about general, been making generalizations. Um, what I'd like to do is summarize the chapters and then take us to particular passages and look at them to get us into the concrete world. So we're, we're out of a world of abstractions in our heads and actually experiencing the book. Um, so um, the first chapter is called, interestingly, the first chapter is called A Nice Little Family. I'm trusting everybody hears the parody, the irony of that, right? It, it sounds like middle America, and I think it's a parody. It's a parody on Western notions of this bourgeois family. Because these Russians have gone to the West, they have all these notions of what it will take to make this perfect world, we're going to have this nice little family and everything will be okay. And what we find out when we step into this family is that they're, they're, they're nothing but problems. Just the brothers don't know each other. They have different mothers. They almost, they really don't know each other. And their, their beliefs could not be more radically different from each other, so. Um, Theodore married twice. He married Adelaida, Adelaida um, and, and I think she became disgusted with him and ran off with a seminarian. And Dimitri, who was the product of that, um, ran off and joined the army. He was honored because of his bravery, his courage, and also demoted because he dueled. So in some way, and, and just what, and by the way, I'm gonna, relevant or not, I'm not sure, but I wanna throw it out there. St. Augustine once said, it actually goes to your, St. Augustine once said, I can't remember where, but he said, the first child of a marriage is always more passionate than the others because he's closer to the parents' lusts because when you first enter marriage, your passions are generally greater. As you live longer together, your passions quiet a little bit. And I think about that with Dimitri because Dimitri has something of that spiritedness that the old man has. Now remember, Theodore's called the old man. And, I, and I've said before, I think, we're, I think we're meant to recall the old man as a figure in Christianity. Or the, sorry. The old man. Each of us, each of us, according to our faith, um, images the old man. Every man, every woman carries that old Adam and Eve. That our life, in our, according to our faith, is an effort to try to, to give ourselves to Christ um, in, the, in the belief that we'll be made into a new creation, a new person. Fyodor's car, the old man. He belongs to that. He looks back to an older world. Dimitri shares some of that. He has that fighting-spirited pride in him and everything he does. Um, Theodore married, married again after um, Adelaide ran off to a woman named Sophia. Um, yeah. And as he, as Dossier presents her, she was far more innocent, far more lovely. Um, Theodore's description of her was that her innocence pierced his heart. He looked at her and he was undone. But it was, and here, interesting, it was her innocence that brought out the worst in him, his pride. Because he performed all of these sexual acts in front of her um, that, that made her life impossible. She, um, she had a breakdown. She gave birth to the two older sons, to Ivan and, yeah. huh? Younger sons. Gave birth to the younger sons. Yes, sorry, what did I say? Older. Oh, sorry. She, sorry, she gave, she gave birth to the younger sons. I was thinking, you know, Ivan is older, and 
Um, Yvonne's older and than um, Alyosha, and Alyosha's younger. Um, and they were handed on to Grigory. In fact, Grigory had a hand in, in influence in all the boys. Grigory is a, um, a serf, and he belongs to that ancient world, that peasant um, agrarian serf world. Um, when the serfs were emancipated, his wife Marfa asked that they leave. She didn't wa wanted nothing to do with Fyodor. And Grigory said no, because he had that old serf sense of loyalty, of serving a master. But we know that that happened with slaves in the 19th century here. But lots of them did not want to leave. They wanted to remain you know, with their slave owners. Um, so we're introduced to the, fam the, the nice little family in part one. In book two, they gather at a monastery because, um, as, we, as we'll find out, um, Dimitri wants this money from his father in order to pay back Katrina so he can, in his own mind, act as if he's done what he, the noble thing and clear his contract so he doesn't have anything to do with it, so he doesn't owe her anything. So the men meet at the uh, monastery and it's an interesting scene because what we see is the conflict that I've been talking about. Piotr Amyosov um, um, represents that gentry class that's smug and self-important. He's the kind of person who would go around declaring his education to show how smart he was, to show how different he was. When he comes, he's, he's Ivan's benefactor, he comes on guard because he knows that um, Theodore's tendency is to make a fool of himself. But they arrive and they wait for Dimitri um, to come. And um, um, when they're there, the, the two older men, um, Musov and uh, Theodore, ex exchange embarrassing words. Just, I just want to touch on this just to get us in the book. So let me go there for a minute. Turn to page 40. Um, for those of you who have different translations, all I can say is I wish you'd get this, or because I don't know how to get you there. I don't know where the differences are, but it's the it's the it's the chapter entitled "Old Buffoon" a couple mm -hmm. pages in. Mm Theodore -hmm. um, is there. They're waiting for Dimitri, and on page forty, Theodore is excusing himself for being late because it's an offense against propriety. Okay. Now, how, how important would propriety be to a serf? Not, not, yeah, not that important. <laughs> so, middle of 40, I myself am always very punctual to the minute remembering that punctuality is the courtesy of kings. So, Fyodor is associating himself with royalty. Not that you are a king, muttered Miusov, unable to restrain himself in time. That's quite true, I'm not a king. Just imagine, Piotr Alexandrovich, I even knew it myself, by God. You see, I'm always saying something out of place. He goes on and excuses himself for his embarrassment. And he gives this example of what he did with this police commissioner once. He says, he was talking to this man, bottom of the page. Out comes the Ip Pravnik, a tall man, fat, blonde, and gloomy, the most dangerous type in such cases. It's the liver, the liver. I spoke directly with him, you know, with the familiarity of a man of the world. Mr. Ipravnik, I said to him, be, so to speak, our Napravnik. Napravnik was an important Moscow composer. He was an artist. 
So the educated, cultivated people would have known him. It's a little bit like saying, that if, I were, if I were playing with somebody, I'd say, oh, you're playing your Schwarzenegger part today, or, I mean, you, you know, substitute, you know, you're alluding to something that most people would know. The guy takes offense at it. Um, I, not type of 41, I explained it all and compared it quite reasonably, didn't I? I beg your pardon, he says, I am an Ip Iprothnik, and I will not allow you to use my title for your puns. He turned around and was about to walk away. I started after him, calling out, yes, yes, you're an Ips project, not a nap from Nick. He's playing, so he was playing on the name. No, he says, have it your way. I'm a not Nick. And just imagine our deal fell through. Anyway, he goes on. Um, and, he, and he says of his wife, your wife, sir, she's a ticklish woman. He meant sensitive, mm. you know, sensitive to things. Um, he suddenly retorted, did you tickle her? I couldn't help myself. Why not a little bit? So he picks up the pun and says, yes, I said, I did. I hope you're seeing. This is like, um, what's his name in uh, um, All's Well? Parolis. Remember, Parolis is a man of words. That's he just lives at a level of language. It's, it's almost as if he has no substance, that he's, he's so dissociated in himself that he has to create a persona of himself in words. And that's what he keeps doing. And he keeps, so he, he's so out of touch with humans as humans, absolutely out of touch, constantly trying to make jokes, trying to be funny, but there's this dissociation. He just lives at a surface level. Did you tickle her? I couldn't help myself. Why not a little pleasant banter? I thought, yes, I said, did I tickle her, sir? Well, at last he gave me quite a tickling. <laughs> Probably beat him up. But it was a long time ago, so I'm not even ashamed to tell about it. I'm always damaging. So he goes on to confess that he's always making a fool of himself. It's like a persona we create, you know, in this sort of moral, spiritual struggle we find ourselves in. Go down below. I'm a natural-born buffoon. I am, reverend father, just like a holy fool. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me. Too, not a, not a very high caliber one, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have chosen grander quarters. Not a very high caliber, unclean spirit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Alyosha is becoming embarrassed with his father, you know that. Um, and Miusov is getting anger because, here's the important thing. He thinks of himself as being so proper. So he's embarrassed to be with him. Now, look at the difference between Miusov and Zosima. What's the difference between the two and the way that they respond to Fyodor? What's the difference? Musov is this guy that is angry, mad. Hmm? Musov is angry, mad, yeah. not happy with him, not a better word. Um, the other one's almost embarrassed. Sorry? The other one's almost embarrassed. I mean, it's, uh, it's just the way they deal with him is different. Or take him, I guess. Musov is too, here, Musov is too concerned with appearances. Mm -hmm. He's pretentious. He wants to think of himself as educated to be around Fyodor reflects a light on him. He's right. too arrogant with his pretensions. So he, he keeps responding in a way that makes it clear to everybody he doesn't want to be associated with this man. Uh -huh. What's Zosima's response to Fyodor? He feels bad for him, I think. Yeah. He says, middle of 43, I earnestly, be this is so extraordinary. 
I, it shows what Dostoevsky, think about it, it's the way he shows characters. The way, and by the way, he, he doesn't moralize. He presents the character unless the character reveal himself. Zosima says, I earnestly beg you not to worry and not to be uncomfortable, because he's been apologizing for embarrassing himself all the time. Not to be uncomfortable, the elder said to him, imposingly, he means it. Be at ease and feel completely at home, and above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. Does everybody see how immediately that brings into contrast the difference between Miyasov and Zosimov? How pretentious Miyasov is. He, he doesn't care about Fyodor. He doesn't love him. He only cares about how he looks. Mm -hmm. Zosimov cares about the man. So he can say of Fyodor, don't be ashamed. And he says it, meaning it. And then on the following page, um, 44, the elder looked up at him and said with a smile, because Fyodor's being a buffoon again, and he's saying how much he respects him, but he, ha he does it half lightly. Fyodor almost has nothing in him to take seriously. Zosimus says, you've known for a long time what you should do. You have sense enough, because Fyodor keeps making excuses for himself. And Zosimus is saying, you, of course you know what to do. You've lived too long. He, he doesn't do this self-righteously. He doesn't condemn him. He, what he's trying to do is help him acknowledge a fact kindly. You have sense enough. Do not give yourself up to drunkenness and verbal incontinence. Do not give yourself up to sensuality, and especially to the adoration of money. Those are all Theodore's great faults. And close your taverns. You cannot close all of them than at least two or three. And above all, <laughs> above everything, above all, above everything else, do not lie. Because what's Theodore doing? He's living on a surface mm -hmm. and trying to create a persona that's absolutely out of touch with who he is as a human being. The, the amazing thing, and, and what, what we're going to learn shortly is, what does um, Dimitri say to, um, I'll, I'll get to in a minute, what does he say when he's talking about his father? He's this, he says, I'm a sensualist. I, myself, Dimitri. What does Alyosha say to him? I'm the same. All, all of them, all of them carry what Paul calls the flesh. What Eliot, remember in the chorus, called that, it, I can't remember the words, they were so well said, but, you know, that spirit, that spirit of earth in us that weighs us down. Um, <clears throat> so, um, the, um, Zosimo will go out and, and speak with the women, and then he'll come back and look at the church, we'll see the church state art. I want to go on, though, just to... Um, because I, I want to go back to those arguments that the men make because they're so central to this whole discussion of church and state. But um, After the meeting, Alyosha goes to Katrina. Go to page 106. She sent a note to him asking him to come because he's got something. Um, um, to say her... Um, but on the way to Katrina, he meets Dimitri. Go to 106. Now this is, Dimitri's an Achillean. He's like Achilles. A, he's a warrior. He's a soldier at heart. He's a fighter. Ivan's a skeptic. Alyosha's a holy man. And this is a fighter 
and he's quoting romantic poetry, German romantic poetry, on page 106. I think this is Schiller, I, I, I can't remember, but it's a very dark view of the world and Ceres, who's, if you know the ancient, she's the, the, the goddess of everything fruitful in the earth. And um, Schiller's, the, it begins darkly hid in cave and cleft, shy, the trouble like it goes on. Thus was all to Ceres when searching for her ravished child, no green culture smiling then, or the drear coast bleak and wild. So it's the way in which this beautiful nature that we have, that the Romantics so enjoyed, can produce these dark things. Um, and he concludes, or, and, and Dimitri is quoting this verbatim. Not with golden corn ears strewed were the ghastly altar stones, bleaching there and gore imbued lay unhallowed human bones sacrificed on the altar of nature. Wide and far where she roved still reigned misery over all, and her mighty soul was moved at man's universal fall. Sobs suddenly burst from Mitch's breath. He seized Alyosha's hand. My friend, my friend, still fallen, still fallen even now. There's so terribly much suffering for man on earth, so terribly much grief for him. Don't think I'm just a brute of an officer who drinks cognac and goes whoring. No, brother, I hardly think of anything else, of anything else but that fallen man. Only I'm not lying now. God keep me from lying and from praising myself. I think about that man because I myself am such a man. We think of Dimitri as a warrior, as a soldier, a man of action. Here we're seeing an aspect of him like Ivan. He reflects a lot and he's preoccupied with human suffering. Every one of the brothers is. Ivan is deeply and so is Alyosha, even though they bring a different. And then he goes on to this other poem that's a celebration of nature. It's called, it's a joy to nature that all the goodness on page 107. Joy's the mainstring of the whole of endless nature's calm rotation. Joy moves the dazzling wheels that roll. Now it goes on and on and on that there's this great beauty creation. You, if, if it's not familiar to you, that was a common theme of the Romantics, think about Wordsworth. If you've read Wordsworth or Keats. But he goes on. All being drinks the mother dew of joy from nature's holy bosom, and good and evil both pursue her steps that strew the rose's blossom. blossom. The brimming cup loves loyalty joy gives to us beneath the sod to insects sensuality in heaven the cherub looks on God. Go on over top of 108 but enough poetry I shed tears well then let me cry maybe everyone will laugh at this foolishness but you won't your eyes are shining too enough poetry I want to tell you now about the insects about those to whom God gave sensuality I am that very insect brother, and those words are precisely about me. So art has once again, as it has, it's opened up aspects of the world, but here it speaks immediately to Dimitri and gives him an image of something in himself, something ugly. Um, middle of 108, too many riddles oppress man on earth. Solve them if you can without getting your feet wet. Beauty, besides I can't bear it that some man, even with a lofty heart and the highest mind, should start from the ideal of Madonna and end up with the ideal of Sodom. But that's exactly how it is in our world. I'm hoping that's true. We all long for beauty. We all long for order. And we keep tripping over something not good in ourselves and in our world. And he says, um, 109, a few lines down, I love depravity. I also love the shame of depravity. I love cruelty. I'm not a bedbug, an evil insect. Am I not a bedbug, an evil insect? 
In short, a Karamazov. And he adds uh, illustrations of that. Go down below. You say that because I blushed, Alyosha suddenly remarked. I blushed not at your words, he's saying to his brother, and not at your deeds, but because I'm the same as you. Um, so the, um, the brothers are slowly beginning to know about one another, and even though they're distinguished, and clearly they are, there are things they have in common. So to put them in black-white categories to make you know, one this and one that, Ivan's a soldier, but here we're seeing a side of him that's very intellectual, um, that's passionate, self-reflective, self-condemning, or Dimitri. This is turning into a community effort, trying to keep me honest, God. But anyway, so... Um, now, what we learn from Dimitri here and I want to be careful, I'm, I'm trying to rush to get, I want to get you guys in the text. Um, Rosie has been here since early this morning, and you don't know this, but I never pass her without telling her to go home because she's here too often, so I tell her to get out of here. She's been here all day, and sometimes we're late. Tonight we're not going to be late. I want to get out of here so she can get home. So I'm going to probably cut this short in a few minutes, but it's, it's not because I don't want to do this because I do it for another 20 minutes, but um, I don't want to keep Rosie here. Um, I want to go to, go to um, um, here in this exchange between Dimitri and um, Alyosha, we get a glimpse of Dimitri, and this is the story that he tells that's so self-incriminating. It's, like, it's really a confession. He said that when he was younger, he, he met this beautiful woman, it was Katrina, Katrina, and was taken by her beauty and her pride. And he learned that she was the daughter of a commanding officer, and the commanding officer used to lend this enormous amount of money to this man, who repaid it, but one time he couldn't and failed to pay it back. And it put the, the colonel in a bad position, and I think was in danger of um, imprisonment or um, you call it when you're kicked out of the army. Um, court martial. Yeah. Um, and um, Dimitri told Katrina's sister, if I remember correctly, to tell the father that he had the money and to tell Katrina, or to tell him to come get it if he wanted. And if he didn't want to come get it, tell Katrina to come get it. And he did that with the idea that if she came with the money because he had the money, he had power over her, he would have sex with her. She came, was humiliated, but she's, she has this proud Russian feminine character. And there's this scene, turn to, turn to page, I think it's 140, 146. Wait, I'm, hold on. No, 113.14, I think. On 113, he watches her, and he says, have you seen, he's, remember, he's talking with Alyosha here still. Um, have you seen her? A real beauty, and she was beautiful then, but for a different reason. She was beautiful at that moment because she was noble, and I was a scoundrel. Because he knows he wanted to use her. And he's so aware, I mean, some men would do it without being aware. He's aware, he's aware. I was a bedbug, 
and on me, a bed bug and a scramble, she depended entirely, all of her, all of her, entirely, body and soul, no way out. I'll tell you honestly, this thought, this spider's thought, so seized my heart that it almost poured out from the sheer sweetness of it. He was, like, likens himself to a bed bug, a tarantula. Um, go down, um, but he thinks that if he gives her the money, in her pride, she'll come back um, and um, she'll present herself with this ingratitude and this pride, and the thought of humiliating him undoes him. Um, and he can't go through with it. He says, 114, a few lines down, um, the voice was right, that was certainly what she'd do. I'd be thrown out, you could see it in the look on her face. Anger boiled up in me. I wanted to pull some mean priggish merchant's trick to give her a sneering look, and right there she stood before me to stun her with the tone of voice you could only, so pride against pride. I hope you can see it. I, th I think most of us should know this moment. Trusting most of us have been there, or all of us, not all. And his response, but 4,000 is much too much. I was joking, how could you think it? You've been too gullible, madam, perhaps 200, even gladly. So what he's done is teasing to get out of it. You see, I'd lose everything, of course. She would run away, but on the other hand, such infernal revenge would be worth it all. I might have spent the rest of my life howling with remorse, but right then I just wanted to pull this little stunt. What he does instead is he looks at her, um, he pulls out the money and gives it to her freely. She is overwhelmed at the response because she was ready to be used. Um, he goes, she leaves, runs. Um, he, he describes himself as being ready to take out a sword because he's so overwhelmed at the moment. She comes back and returns the change to him and then shortly afterwards her um, benefactress dies and leaves her a fortune. And she returns the money to Demetrius, he accepts it and it looks like everything is okay. In his mind, he's rid of her. Except once she gives him money to give to her sister and instead of giving it to her sister, he he's met Grushenka, meanwhile, he takes her out and the two have a a wild orgy party. Um, and it all it does is reinforce in him this sense that he's a deeper scoundrel than other people. One last scene, and then I'll, I want to um, stop for the, turn to 146. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and cover some of this again next week, because there's some scenes here I want to look. I want to go back to the monastery and the the controversy between the men and a couple of other scenes, but but I just want to get you guys in the novel just to get a feel for the characters. 146, Alyosha um, has done a number of things since his talk with uh, Dimitri, but he goes to Katrina's and um, he finds her there thinking she's alone. And um, Katrina's called him there because she really wants to know from him whether he thinks Dimitri's love for her is real or not. Page 146. Wait, Alexei Fyodorovich, I shall tell you first of all I am so anxious for you to come. You see, I know perhaps much more than you do yourself. It's not the news that I need from you. This is what I need from you. I need to know your own personal last impression of him. I need you to tell me directly, plainly, even coarsely, how you yourself see him now and how you see his position after your meeting with him. She wants to know if he really loves her. Um, Alyosha's in a um, 
difficult situation and um, suddenly um, she mentions Grushenka without any fear of, of talking about a rival even though she knows Dimitri's had sex with her and they've gone out on page 147 um, she asks can a of eternally um, burn with such a passion it's a passion not love he won't marry because she won't marry him again Katrina suddenly laughs strangely he may well marry her Alyosha thinks he might he won't she says and at that moment um, Grushenka comes out from behind this um, what do you call it a one of those portion huh portable screen screen something um, and she presents herself and on 146 40, sorry, 148, the description of her is absolutely lovely. She's innocent and beautiful, very sensuous. Um, at the bottom of 148, what struck Alyosha most of all in his face was its childlike, open-hearted expression. Her look was like a child's. Her joy was like a child. She came up to the table precisely joyfully, as if she were expecting something now with almost childlike, impatient, trusting curiosity. Katrina, when they she shows her that she doesn't have to be afraid of this woman. She's not a rival for Dimitri's affection. She takes Katrina's hand and kisses it three times. Because the two of them assume from the talk they just had that they love each other. And the Grushenka is not going to do anything to interfere with Katrina's love. Katrina takes her hand, kisses it three times. Page 150, middle of the page. As if in rapture she kissed the indeed lovely perhaps too plump hand and Grushina, Grushenka three times. Now at that point, can you close that? Just for a, I'm almost done. At that point, Katrina expects Grushenka to take her hand reciprocally and return the affection. Um, at the bottom, 150. Um, Won't you make me ashamed, dear young lady, kissing me a hand like that in front of Alexei? How could I possibly make you ashamed? Ah, my dear, how poorly you understand me. But perhaps you do not quite understand me either, dear young lady. Perhaps I'm more wicked than you are on the surface. I have a wicked heart. I'm willful. I charm poor Dmitri Fyodorovich that time only to laugh at him. But now it will be you who saved him. You gave your word. You will make him listen to reason. You will reveal to him that you love another man. You have loved him for a long time. and He's now offering you his hand. Ah, no, I never gave you my word. It's you who were saying all that, but I didn't give my word. So suddenly, what was this exchange of what they both thought was a love between each other? It was mostly on um, Katrina's part because she thought um, she would have Dmitri to herself, that Grushenka was not a rival. Um, top of 151, oh no, my um, young lady, my angel, I promise nothing. Now you see worthy on how wicked and willful I am next to you. She doesn't take her hand to return the kiss now. She goes out making clear that she's going after Dimitri, and she may do it and leave him. That, so the, what we see is, in a sense, a counterpart in the female to Dimitri. That um, she's doing it just to be willful and spiteful. Um, and at this point, um, Katrina, Katerina, breaks down in tears because suddenly the opening that she thought she had to this man is now closed. So um, I want to stop here. What I'd like to do, hold on just for a second. 
I want to I want to go back over some of the scenes that we didn't cover here. The monastery scene is a really important one, and I'd like to look at a scene with Smirjikov um, and a couple of others. And then I want to really concentrate on those two scenes that I mentioned earlier um, between Ivan and, and uh, Alyosha about the innocence and the Grand Inquisitor. That is so crucial. If you haven't read it, read it closely. Um, but but let me just say this here before we leave. The, the plot is thickening. What's seen black and white are, you know, clear differences between brothers and relationships that seem established are getting murkier and murkier. There's treachery around every corner. Uh, what we're finding are people either living in their heads, purely intellectually, on a surface, or people living in their passions and struggling enormously with each other. Where is it going to go? Is there any hope for this world? It's going to get darker in the next two chapters in the innocent, or the, rep, the rebellion chapter that, and the um, Grand Inquisitor. And it's also getting deeper to the central issue, this relationship between church and state and, and what's going on in Russia. So enjoy your reading. And if you find yourself shaking, don't worry. Find somebody to hold on to. If everybody could please just directly exit, I really want to get out of here um, so Rosie can go home. You take it. No, actually, it's for her, <laughs> not for you, because she needs it more than you do. <laughs> then you don't know anything. <laughs> I think both of us need it. Mark, thanks for all the food again. God. Doc, you going to take some of those rolls? Uh, it's only, it's only good. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. That. I hope you come again. I will. I, I think my book, the words are different. Yeah, the di different. yeah, they're, they're different translations. I, I just wanted to get one that was a little bit bigger because they're usually so small. I know. They're hard to read. Yes. Yeah. So. I'll try to find it.